Thanks for tuning in to this episode of Thank You Now What, a podcast about life after service. I'm your host, Matt DeVivo. This show is produced by Ben Murray. For today's episode, I got to catch up with Manny Jacobs. Manny served in the Australian Army and is a veteran of Iraq and Afghanistan. After serving as an infantry paratrooper for several years, Manny got the opportunity to go teach at the Australian Defense Force Parachute School. Manny fell in love with the sport of skydiving. He's also a natural teacher and coach. So after his tour at the school was up, he moved to the United States to work at one of our busiest vertical wind tunnels in nearby drop zones. Here, he continues to instruct military and civilian jumpers of all backgrounds. I met Manny a few years ago while I was jumping and even as an instructor myself, I often seek his counsel and I'm always able to learn new things from him. We recorded this episode a couple months back when we were able to sit down together after a day at the drop zone. So I remember like not sleeping much the night before. I mean, when I did my static line course, I didn't sleep much either, but I think the free force stuff, I was more scared. Um, definitely more scared. I know I was more scared because like I'd have like bodily functions would like happen more often. <laughs> you know what I mean? Yeah. Like, scared I'm, shitless. Yes, exactly. We hope you enjoy our conversation. Thanks for listening. Did you listen to uh, any episodes yeah. or yeah. did you check some out? I'll check a little bit out. Do you know anyone we've had on? I don't think so. Really? The only guy I thought maybe would be like Nelson, but I don't know how much you maybe have met or talked to him. Probably don't know him well. No? No. Oh, okay. You're originally born in the States, right? Yep. Did Atlantic City. Yeah. Atlantic City, New Jersey, 1980. AC. AC? Atlantic City, is that what you call it? I think that's what, like, the gamblers call it. Yeah, uh, I think my father was, what do you call that, people that deal the cards? Dealers? Dealers? You just call them dealers? I thought it had a fancy name. Uh, I think yeah. it's just a dealer. Okay, I'm thinking yeah. of something else. Um, but I think he was one of those. And then, um, how deep do you want to go into this? Because i got some shit in here I could tell. Well, it's up to you. Okay. So, I mean, uh, I, we have uh, people who are like super reserved, all right, all and right. then like we honestly had a dude tell us about like his drug addiction spiral and how to like take his, it, like reclaim his life back. Because there was some messed up things that happened when I was when I came into existence. I mean, it's a public uh, broadcast media, so yeah, whatever um, you want. So, <laughs> so yeah. So I was born in Atlantic City, and um, my father is American, but my mother. Um, is from Australia, so um, that might help with you know the way I sound. Yeah. Um, but she was so she was young. She was traveling. She met my father in London. They got married, and then they had. I've got so I've got I've got four siblings, two older brothers, and then in 1980 I came around, and he was working in a in a, in a casino. But my mother and father were in a religious cult called the children of god oh no shit yes no shit so if you want anyone wants to know any more about that they should just look it up it's pretty i can swear right yeah okay it's pretty fucked up um if you want to yeah if anyone wants to look into that it's kind of messed up so basically my mom was like trapped in this cult and she had she had two more she had two more she had two daughters after me um but they traveled more like, so my, the, my daughter who was born, after, my sister was born after me, was born in Brazil. And then they went back to the States 
where my youngest sister was conceived. But at that time, my mother managed to escape the cult. So she managed to escape. So she was pregnant with my youngest sister. And she grabbed all of us kids, four of us kids. I was five at the time. She did all this in secret from my father, put us all on a plane and flew us back to Perth, Western Australia, which is where she was born, which is where her parents were. And she flew us all back there when I was five. So that's, and so that's why I grew up in Australia, even though I was born here in America. So how, like, how many different countries are they going around to? Because you said England, Brazil, the yeah, US. Yeah, so they went through a lot of countries because my oldest brother. Is this all part of, like, the, the cult thing? Like, I, they were missionaries. Oh, okay. So they were part of this cult and they were doing missionaries work. So my oldest brother was actually born in, where well, he was born in Spain, my oldest brother. And then my other brother was born in the same place as I was, and then he's in New Jersey. And my sister, Brazil, and then the youngest sister was born in Perth in Australia when, when, we, when she managed, finally managed to escape everything and get back to Perth, mm. which is where she was born, and my, where my grandparents immigrated to from Yugoslavia. So I'm, no half, like I'm half Croatian and half African-American. Yeah. We've covered like half the globe in the yeah. first five minutes. Yeah. It's pretty nuts, right? <laughs> How old were you when you learned about this? Oh, that's a good question. I've never thought about that. Um, like you, did you think something was off when you were like five? Oh, when I was young, I remember being in school and like doing like Father's Day would come along and everyone would like, like sitting in school and the kids were like, we're making things for Father's Day to give to our father. Yeah. And I always remember, like, I was a kid that didn't, like, have a father to give anything to. So I would, like, make something and give it to my grandfather. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, but... So I always knew, like, there was no father around. Like, I knew that from a... And I don't remember... I really don't remember much from before Australia. Like, from Atlantic City and New yeah. Jersey and yeah. any sort of stuff that happened in, in America. Like, a very, very... Like, maybe, like, a small handful of memories, you know, less than... Less than Less than half a dozen memories mm. from America, from my time here, or any time like overseas. Um, after I was born, like obviously I went to Brazil with them when my other sister was born. I have zero memory of that. I would have been like one or two. Yeah. Because my sister's like, my sister's three years younger than me. So, you know, I would have still been less than three years old mm. when I was over there. So. I remember uh, when I was a kid, I had a babysitter who I don't think. Uh, Maybe like Jehovah Witness, yeah. Which I don't think you'd like classify as a cult, but you know. Mm. But like, you know, not like a extremely common religion. But we have. She took uh, me to mass. Oh, mass! And like, yeah. be like participate in like. Uh, I mean, that doesn't go over well when you're baby. <laughs> when you're like a little kid, and your babysitter's like, "Hey, let's try this new religion." Yeah, there's yeah. plenty of plenty of Jehovah Jehovah's Witnesses over in Australia as well. Yeah, yeah, plenty of. Christians, Jehovah's Witnesses, Muslims, and plenty of religion over there. Yeah. Yeah. I just, that is my experience with religion when I, when I was younger. But mm. yeah, so grew up in Perth, which is, um, they call it the most isolated city in the world. Really? Yes. Because to get to Perth, like from anywhere else in Australia, like takes a fucking long time. And to get to Australia from anywhere else in the world, <laughs> <laughs> takes a fucking long time. Yeah. So it's very isolated. Um, 
if you look at the map of Western Australia, we're like Perth's like in the south west corner. Mm-hmm. Extremely beautiful beaches and it's a beautiful country. But if you look from for other cities and major built up areas close to that, there's not many. Would any like would nobody would like drive there? I've driven there. From like from across the continent. Across the continent, yeah, that happens. What's that drive like? It's I mean, it's um, like as wide as the US? It's yeah, it takes yeah, so the landmass of Australia is similar to the US. Yeah. Um it took me forty something hours to get across. I think closer to fifty hours really to get across, like forty seven, forty eight hours driving. Or like a six hour flight maybe. Or like five hour flight, four and a half, five hour flight. It depends. But the drive's pretty nice if you're willing to part with a few days of your existence for it. Yeah. Yeah. So yeah. I used to do it. I did it a few times when I was in the military and I had leave and I, I was um, half of the time I was living out of a van. I bought it. I bought it. My favorite vehicle I've ever owned. I bought this transporter, um, T5 VW transporter. And um, I set it all up in the back. So I had a bed and everything in there and I would um, drive it to drop zones all the time. And at the time I was working at the parachute school so I would drive it when we went away on course. I would drive it out there and I'd just stay in my van. It was van life. It was perfect. I loved it. And then, so I decided just to drive it over home so that over to Perth so I could take all my toys. I took my scuba diving gear, took my skydiving gear. I took everything with me over there. Yeah. And so that's when I started driving back and forth. And that was a nice way to do it because I didn't have to plan so much. Like, as long as there was like gas stops, yeah. you know, fuel stations along the way, then I just, packed all my stuff and just hit the road and just whenever i decided to stop i would stop sit in my van and it's extremely there's some parts in there in the middle there that are extremely isolated like nothing around which i it's pretty cool actually you have guns in australia like you uh i personally what's the gun laws i personally didn't have a gun until i moved here is it like just like uh if you have land you have like a hunting rifle yeah like handguns and stuff there's just more rules you can buy guns um and I, actually, I just learned this recently because I was watching a movie with my with my girlfriend, um, and it was about the the guy who committed that massacre in Port Arthur in Tasmania. Oh, like three years ago? No, like a long, long time ago, oh. like like in the nineties. Okay. And um, so he killed like thirty something people, thirty five people or something, in um in Tasmania, Port Arthur. And at the time, the gun laws were pretty loose. Like, you could buy semi-automatic weapons and things like that. And so he killed a bunch of people. And then very shortly after that, the government passed new new gun laws. Mm. And then they did, like, a buyback where they bought back, like, I think it was it was more than half a million guns they bought back from people who just owned guns. They're like, okay, you can't have these anymore. We're going to buy them from you. So we'll pay you for them. Yeah. We'll take them and destroy them. So they did that. And then... New gun laws, but from what I read, like not all the states follow the gun laws 100%. And actually now, there's actually more guns in Australia now than there used to be back then. There's actually more guns. So I don't know if they're the same types of guns, like the semi-automatic guns and like, you know, or fully automatic guns. You certainly can't have those things, but there's still guns. People still have guns. People I know still have guns. It's just, it's a longer process to get them. 
was a lot of people like who were like ranching and stuff, right? Yeah, because there's, there's so much, so much like farms wilderness and, land and, farms. and stuff. Yeah. And we have a lot of pest animals. Like I know a lot of farmers who will like shoot kangaroos and shoot rabbits and yeah. all these types of stuff just to get rid of like their pests, you know. Yeah. So it's interesting learning that you guys just hate kangaroos. Yeah, we don't hate them. I don't hate them. I'm just like, <laughs> well, so uh, I served with a guy who had like a bunch of land. He's like, all oh, these fucking kangaroos. Yeah. So when I was in the mil- when I first joined the military, I, I'm, I was an infantry soldier and the, the infantry school is in a place called Singleton in New South Wales. Um, Lone Pine Barracks is what it's called. And the field, the areas of, that we go out fielding out there and even the ranges where we shoot littered with kangaroos, mm. like everywhere, everywhere you go, there's kangaroo shit all over the ground. Yeah. They're just everywhere. So, um, there's no shortage of kangaroos, like because you don't really eat them. Yeah, I've eaten them before. You can't eat them. You can get them at the grocery stores, like kangaroo meat. Um, it's not like Sweden where they eat reindeer all the time. No, or Norway or wherever. It's not. It's I not. Think they used to serve us uh, reindeer at the Norwegian base in Afghanistan. Oh yeah, I haven't. I don't think I've tried reindeer, but the, I've tried the kangaroo a few times. It's really like it's super lean mm-hmm. meat, so it's like you have to like know how to cook it for it to taste good. Okay. So um, I was just like. Yeah, it's super lean. Somebody you said can... something about like Australia being super isolated. I think it was this book that uh, is called Sapiens. Oh, it's like, uh, well, I mean, it's about humans. Yes. So I don't know why they're. Uh, I but... start. I have that audio book. I just started listening to it. Oh yeah. Yes. It's like uh, I can tell you, like probably high up on the list of books that change. I'm not gonna say like change my life, change the way I think about things. Yeah. And, like in a very grand scheme because it's the it, you know it's the history of the human race yes but i think he t- i don't know if it's that book or whatever but he talks about just the continent of australia having all these crazy wacky animals yeah you know like the giant sloth or like the you know buck tooth whatever oh, we have sloths in in australia but like the like a fucking gigantic one or i don't know like they when they find like fossils yeah. when they find them in australia a they're like we've never there, yeah. seen something like this yeah. Because it's it's just like it's so out there. There's nothing else really. Whatever close. point in like the tectonic, uh, you know, shift where nobody could get out there anymore. Yeah. Yeah. Like it, it was just a whole branch of evolution. Yeah, we got a lot of animals there that you can't find anywhere else. Yeah, a lot of things that are d- deadly and dangerous as well. Yeah. And it's funny when I'm here because um, there's not a lot of Australians where I live and in the community that I work in. As that you are well, you know, very familiar with. There's not here. There's not a lot of Australians in it, so I always get, I always get told that in Australia, everything's trying to kill you. Yeah, which I have to correct people because in Australia, not everything is trying to kill you. Um, there's a lot of things that have the potential to kill you <laughs> quickly and easily, but they're not necessarily trying to kill you. They're just going about their day. Right. Just going about their day. You know, trying to trying to survive like any other creature, and if you, I tell tell everyone if you see something, and you don't know what it is, just don't go over there. Right. Don't go over there and fuck with it, and you'll be fine. So it's like that's the advice I give to people, and they're like, "Oh, I don't want to go to Australia. Everything's trying to kill you. It's not trying to kill you. Yeah. Just stay away from it." I had a great. I heard a uh, like great comic bit where the guy was talking about just calling it a shark attack. It's like yeah. all shark attacks happen in the water. Yeah, like that's where they live. You don't exactly. It's not like a shark attack. Like you were you were at yeah. an ATM 
you know, at yeah. night. Yeah. <laughs> There's a yeah. shark like tapped you on the yeah. shoulder. The shark's not trying to attack you. He's just, he's like, he's wondering if your food, because you're in his environment. Yeah. So he's wondering if your food, he's like, oh, what is that? Is that food? And usually they bite you and they go, oh, it's not food. And then they spit you out. Yeah. So, but shark attacks do happen back where I grew up. On the beaches where I grew up, there's, um, I think on average we, in Perth, we average at least one shark attack, maybe one fatal shark attack a year. Mm. One out of like the millions of swimmers in the, in the ocean every year. There's like one. Yeah. What kills people most in, in, in Australia at the beach is just drowning because we get a lot of tourists that go over and, you know, not used to a beach. So I'll go in and see you later. Yeah. So that happens a lot. Just drownings. But yeah. it's safe to go to Australia. You won't get shot. You won't get shot. <laughs> so, yeah, that's why one, I think that's why we got onto the subject about you asked about guns because I was traveling and I was in the middle of nowhere by myself. Like, never ever did I feel unsafe. Like, being out there by myself, mm. never ever did I feel unsafe. It might, I mean, it might be different for a woman by herself, but yeah. generally, Australia is a pretty, in my opinion, it's a pretty safe, safe place. Yeah. Generally, we still have crime, but. I think generally it's a pretty safe place. Yeah. I think a lot of places can feel safe when you're, you know, like your size. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I am slightly above average. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> I'm a big guy. Yeah. I uh, listened to this uh, podcast about ice hockey called Spitting Chicklets, but they had like uh, this guy on Nathan Walker. He's the first Australian to play in the NHL. And then, like, everything he does, he's the first, you know, he's, like, the first Australian to score a goal, the first to get a hat trick, the f- all this. Just everything. Yeah. yeah. I think he won uh, I think he won the cup with either the Blues or the or the Capitals. But they had him on, and the whole episode was just, like, a bunch of guys talking about how Australia and America are different. So maybe that's not, like, uh, I'll try. <laughs> so what, what do you eat? What's, yeah. uh, yeah. People ask me that question a lot too. Like, what do we eat? And I'm like, we eat whatever you eat. Yeah. It's the same. You guys are big on like breakfast shit. Like you go all out on breakfast stuff though, right? I am a fan of breakfast. Yeah. I definitely feel like we do, well, restaurants or cafes in Australia from what I've seen here and there, I definitely, I guess I'm biased, but I feel like Australia does it a little better. Yeah. The breakfast, breakfast, definitely breakfast. Yeah. And then the food, the, most of the time in Australia, that we get good, fresh produce. Like, the food quality is pretty good. Mm. I've noticed that. It's really good. Seafood seafood quality is good. Meat quality is good. Um, coffee. I'm into coffee. Yeah. I think the coffee back home is better than here. So, yeah. now I just do it myself at home. Mm. So, But I'm not living in a very coffee-cultured area of the States. So, oh, well. Yeah. Well, they sell it all through the mail now and stuff. There's, mm. Yeah. Company that likes to do all military regalia and, and sell you a bunch of Talking coffee. About Black Rifle? Yeah. I've heard about them. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, yeah. They just IPO'd, I think. That's when they go on the stock market? Oh, uh, yeah. Okay. Yeah. Sorry, I'm not a I'm not a economics or business guy. So. Yeah, that's fine. Oh, you are there, right? Uh, I am. Yeah. 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 It wasn't always, but. Yeah. yeah. That's what you do now, right? It is, yeah. Well, kind of. Kind of. Yeah. Aren't you like a consultant? Yeah. I think we had this conversation. Yeah. It's a lot about le- uh, learning about other people's businesses really quickly and then helping them out with them. Yeah. But before that, I, I did like a brief 
stint in uh, kind of banking. Yeah, so. I remember you talking about that. I actually taught myself a lot of what I know just when I was in the military on deployments. Like out of personal curiosity, obviously yeah. went to school for it later. But yeah. like, you know, kind of like built the foundation myself. Right. You work for a firm? Yeah. Consulting firm? Yeah. 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 In between, like, arriving in Australia, pretty normal, like, time growing up until you joined the Army? Pretty normal. Yeah. I would say it's pretty normal. Um, you play a lot of basketball, I know. I played a lot of basketball. I started playing basketball when I was about, I think, 12 or 13. My brother started playing a lot. I got into it about, in my, yeah, my early teenage years. I was still pretty short, skinny little, weak little kid, <laughs> young teenager. Yeah. I, was, I wasn't very good when I started obviously, and then I just kept going to play through high school. It's pretty much all I did through high school, which is probably why I didn't do well so well at high school, even though, like, at the start of school, like, like I, I could do everything. I was pretty smart. I even got put in, like, the smarter classes, like, you know, smart math classes, like, you know, all the calculus and geo classes. I did all that stuff, but instead of studying, I would go play basketball, and that's all I did. And then, And then I left school pretty early, kept playing basketball but i got a job of all places i got a job i got a job in an abattoir so like where they kill sheep and yeah cut up sheep right. when i was 16 i got a job um hacking up sheep hacking up sheep no i literally hacked up sheep um <laughs> it was this place called metro meats and it was in i can't remember the name of it, it was a rural area so the way i got this job was because my mom my mom's partner my father wasn't in the picture. I hadn't, I hadn't met my father at this stage. Like I didn't, didn't remember. I don't remember him from America since before I moved to Australia. So I have no memory of him, and I haven't met him yet. And I'm so my mum has a partner, and um, he got me a job because he worked. That's where he worked. He was yeah. a manager there, so he got me a job. And my job was um, we're standing at this. We're at the end of like the line where they do where they where they pull the skins off the sheep. So they slaughter the sheep, do whatever they do. And I was like on, the, on this ground level and out of the chute would all these skins like that freshly ripped off a carcass would, would, would fall onto these tables. And there was a bunch of us there. We'd just have a knife and we'd had to like sort of dress the skins before putting them on a truck bed. And then they would go to the truck bed to like a salting shed and they would get salted and sorted and or like graded and sorted and all these types of things. So... I would sometimes I would work in like the salting shed, like salt, like stacking skins and salting skins, and then I would work where they would come and fall on the table, and I had a knife and I would, you know, cut and dress the skins. And I was sixteen, and I was doing that. Wait, you left school for this? I left school for that. Why do you uh, like? What made you leave school? I, I mean, we finished school at eighteen yeah. here. Oh yeah, uh, I think we finished school at six seventeen. In Australia. Okay. So, yeah, I I left right before I finished. So, I didn't finish. I left and got this job. I mean, yeah, I just didn't. I just fell off the rails with school. I just stopped stopped studying, just played basketball. Yeah. And I just played basketball and then didn't study. And then I was like, this isn't for me. And then luckily, my mother's partner, Jim was his name. He was like, okay, well, you got to do something. Have you come work for me? Yeah. So I think I didn't do that for too long. I think I did that for maybe like less than a year I did that. But it was really good money at the time. And then 
How did it feel being like, you know, 16 and you're like, oh, skinning sheep, like, uh, you know, work my way up in the company or yeah, were you no. like, you know, kind of like, I had zero, what else is out there? I had zero goals or ambitions. Really? Zero. I wanted to play basketball. Other than that, just like, I need to buy food so I got this job. Well, I was just, basically, I was like, I didn't, I had zero idea how the world works. Obviously, I'm 16. And I was just told that I had to do something. Like, if you're gonna, if you're not gonna go to school, you have to get a job. Yeah. Basically, that was it. I had, I'd had a job already for a few years. It was like an after-school job. Yeah. Um, running milk to houses. So back then, there used to be milk delivery, like home delivery milk service. And one of my good friends. Well, this is how we became friends. But my brother used to work for him. My older brother. And then I think when I was about maybe twelve, twelve or thirteen, I started doing it as well. So after school. He would pick us up and, you know, in a van full of milk and we'd sit in the back of the van and drive the route and we'd jump out and run the milk to the house, the front door, run back and do that for a couple of hours after school. So that was actually my first job. Um, and then, yeah, I didn't really, yeah, as a younger teenager and a younger adult, zero ambition and zero, like, sort of goals to life. Like I was kind of like most grown up, like my mom before, before her partner Jim was around was just a single mom with five kids mm. and I'm the middle child. So I sort of kind of feel like so you like disappear. I just disappeared. Yeah. So I, and I was super quiet and shy as well. I don't feel like I'm so much like that now. I definitely feel like military sort of beat that out of me a little bit. Yeah. Um, but I used to be really quiet. Really quiet, and I wouldn't say a word. Really shy, yeah. um, and I just, yeah, I kind of, I think maybe that might have been a reason why I sort of fell off the rails with school as well. There wasn't really anyone else putting any interest into my schoolwork, like none. Like I get every now and then an occasional comment about, "Are you studying?" You know, and that would be it. And I'd be like, "Yeah, no worries," and I'd go off and do whatever I wanted to do, which was usually play basketball. Um, so it wasn't really much. So what point like pushes you or just plants a seed of military might be for me? That's, that's a good question. Um, and that's directly related to that because, you know, I had, I had no. So you're like a recruiter's like dream kid. Yeah, I really am. I I had, yeah, I really am. I had like zero goals in my life. Like I wasn't like. I wasn't like a super, like I didn't get into trouble. Like I'm not, it wasn't like a troubled kid. I did drink a little bit like heavily when I was, had that abattoir job. Um, but after that, I sort of slowed down. But after that job, I did a bunch of other stuff. I had a, another job as like a kitchen hand. I worked in a five-star resort as a waiter. What else did I do? I worked for my brother in construction. Sure, there's something else in there somewhere. Oh yeah, I pushed trolleys. I collected the trolleys. So carts, supermarket carts. Yeah. I did that for a while when I was 18. I would just like all day I would be in the car, in the car, in the car park, the parking lot. Yeah. And I would just go and collect these trolleys, take them back. And I would do that all day. Um, I did that as well. I played and all through that, I played a lot of basketball. So I actually made it to like semi-pro basketball, yeah. which is like in Australia, it's, the, it's I guess that you could consider it the league underneath the, the national level. It's the state level basketball. Okay. It was the state league. We called it. And I played, I did that for a few years. Um, you play center. No, I wasn't really that big. I'm six foot six, but 
generally in that league, centers were bigger than me. Okay. Like way bigger than me. Okay. Yeah, I was like maybe usually they'd plug me into we had a small team. So usually they would plug me into like a power forward position. So I'd I'd bounce back between like a four or a three position. Okay. Yeah. Um when I watch basketball, I like I try to like pick out guys who are my height. I'm mm-hmm. six two, and they just look like tiny. Yeah, you're shorter like than John, all the, like you're John, shorter than all the small guys. Yeah, I know. Yeah. I know. Like John Stockton. <laughs> yeah. Even if you look at like Kyrie Irving, I think yeah. he's like six three. Yeah. And so yeah, I was. Um, I guess I'm about Michael Jordan's height. Okay. Roughly. Oh, yeah. Okay. Yeah, and he wasn't short, but he's not like he's not playing center. Right. Yeah. But um, so I did that, and I even went to university for a while. Uh, I went and studied software engineering. So I went back to school, tried again. Yeah. And I didn't fit again, you know, because once again, all I did was play basketball. You're just like software engineering. Like we're in the, we're in the internet age. Let me try this. Did you I've have always, any like propensity no, for it? I've always been into computers. Oh yeah. That was one of my other hobbies. Like when you just like tinker and stuff. Yeah. When I was, when I first got that job at the abattoir, it was when I, I saved up and I built my first PC. Oh. Four components built my PC. Um, and one of the, I think one of the reasons why I started that was because the guy who I was working for, the milk run, he was heavily into computers. And then I would, I would play basketball with him and a lot of other guys that worked for him and my brother. So we would all go to the high school courts after school and stuff. We would even go to the high school basketball courts in between our milk run and go and play pickup games and then go and finish work. Um, So that that group of friends that I was into, a few of those guys were heavily into computers. You ever hustle basketball? No, that's not really a thing back there. Really? In Australia. You've seen like white men can't Yeah, I've seen that. Yeah, definitely. That's not... I never experienced that in Australia. No, no, I never experienced that. We just just to play, that was it. Yeah, so um, that's that's how I think that's how I got into computers through that group of friends. And so, yeah, I got into computers then. So I thought, oh, maybe I'll go do software engineering. So I went and did my like I guess GED equivalent, what you would call it here. I went and did that, and then I got in, went got into university, and I once again the first year, like, year or two, like I did really well, and then. I was just like distracted with, this is when I was playing in the semi-professional league as well. Mm-hmm. So I was trying to do that, play at a really high level of basketball and work. So I had all three of those things going on at the same time. I think that was like just too much for me. Yeah. So eventually like I dropped out of university and then um, still like my jobs were like nothing really gelled with me. Like I wasn't happy with any of my employment. And then I basically, like, I felt like a bum. I felt like a, felt like I was just, you know, even when I'm on unemployment for a while, not long, a few months here, like maybe six months or so. And then I got like, I moved out of my mom's house because at this stage, my mom and her partner had split up. I lived with my mom for a little bit and I was like, this is ridiculous. Like, Cause now I'm like, now I'm like in my twenties. You know, yeah, and like no job stuck. You know, school isn't stuck. Um, Basketball is not really going anywhere. Like I'm pretty much just stuck in this, you know, semi-professional league that, you know, I won't make a living out of. Right. You like riding yeah. the bus and stuff. Yeah, riding the bus. Yeah, absolutely. I'll Games ride. and just like yeah, I'd ride the bus places, and um, I basically like yeah, I just felt like a, I felt like a piece of shit. 
Mm. I felt like a fucking loser. Yeah. So um, when I, I was just like looking for employment and I just stumbled across the army and then I started looking through like jobs that the army would provide and then I just applied. And then I applied and uh, it took about a year before my application go and see recruiters till I actually my, I got shipped off to uh, recruit school. Yeah. I think most of that year I'd, I'd through that year as well, like I had different jobs and then I, I'd worked for my brother in construction for a while. I lived with my other brother who he kicked me out and I kind of wanted to leave anyway because he was like heavily into drugs. So I left because I'm not, I've never been in like into drugs. Yeah. Luckily I never fell down that path. So yeah, I joined, I joined as a, as a rifleman, infantry soldier. So yeah, it's January, 2005, 17th of January, 2005 was my enlistment date. And I got shipped off to a place called Kapuka in um, Wagga Wagga, New South Wales. And I started my started my army career. Some very interesting names. Cool names, right? Yeah. Yeah, yeah. yeah nice. cool names. Yeah. Wagga Wagga is the name of the town. Yeah. Kapuka is the name of the barracks there. Okay. Um, where they do all the recruiting for everyone that joins the army goes to Kapuka. Yeah. What's the sentiment like around that time, around like joining the army? Because uh, I joined here in 03, mm-hmm. and it was, you know, like a bunch of fanfare, like we love the troops, everything. I think the troops in Australia are seen – treated a little differently than America. In America, the troops are very much like the super, like generally very respected, you know, and very like looked up to and very appreciated. And they get a lot of, you know, thanks and they get a lot of, you know, they get treated well from what I see. Well, some of that is like, I mean, 50 years ago is the exact opposite. So, you know, maybe like coming to terms. Yes. I, I, that's what I see. I see, you know, like everyone's like, thank you for your service. And, you know, you see your military, get a military discount and all these types of things. And so I see that stuff and it seems like the military gets appreciated here. Yeah. Rightfully so. Yeah. Not so much in Australia. Like I don't think really on like the day to day things like military aren't really getting, you know, a second thought. Like another like blue collar job. Yeah. Just another job, except for one day out of the year, which yeah. is called Anzac Day. Yeah. If you ever get a chance to participate in an Anzac Day back in Australia and you're a serviceman or ex-serviceman, excuse me, it's a lot of fun. It's a lot of fun. We get definitely get shown a lot of respect and appreciation on that day. Mm-hmm. I definitely felt that like when I was still serving, um, when we when we, we have this thing called a, a dawn, dawn service, um, which obviously starts at dawn. And um, there's usually like a lot of them around the country, like, all the gut, like all these places all around the country will hold a dawn service. And usually every single dawn service I've been to packed with people, packed with people. All everyone comes to shows their respects to the past Australian, yeah. um, servicemen and women. And, um, it's really awesome, awesome service. Like, like you really feel quite proud to, um, to have served, you know? Yeah. I definitely felt very proud and very respected on those day, on that day in particular. Yeah. But, I never really had any like disrespect from the, from the, um, like from people in Australia because I was in the army or anything like that. Never. I know it's just a little different. You guys have, was it Waltzing Matilda and the band played Waltzing Matilda? We have those songs. Yeah. 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 I can't remember. They play. You should come up with a third song the band played that the band played Waltzing Matilda. They like to, 
We have the the pipes and drums is a big thing yeah. back there in the military as well. I don't know if it's done here a lot, like bagpipes. Uh, no, I know like uh, like the firefighters in New York, they always have the bagpipes. Yeah, so but the military, yeah. I don't. Yeah, military back home, like we always have we um the units that I served in um would have a band. Yeah. Each unit had a band, and they'd have the pipes and drums, and okay. they get the pipes and drums out, and that's that's pretty cool. If you ever get to like. I remember, like hanging out in the battalion, the battalion um, pubs, and the pipes and drums playing uh, on an Anzac day. It was pretty cool. Yeah, yeah. Well, the second song is about um, Battle of Gallipoli, right? Uh, I'm not sure what the song's about, to be honest. Oh, okay. Uh, no. Um, I used to hear it in uh, Patty's pub all the time. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, but no. After Kapuka, what was Kapuka? I was in Kapuka for not too long. I was in Kapuka for maybe six weeks. I think at the time they had condensed the recruit training to six weeks from 12. I think I did six weeks at Kapuka. And then I went to a place called um, Singleton, New South Wales, Lone Pine Barracks, which is a school of infantry. Yeah. We used to call it the school of cool. But I did, I think I spent three months there. And then after that, I did two months of... They called it advanced infantry training. So what we had instructors come from a commando unit and they came and they took our platoon because we were, we were direct entry special forces platoon supposed to go. They were recruiting us to be in the commando unit, but I didn't do so well at that. Okay. So yeah, I didn't do so well at that. I didn't do so well in selection. I kind of dropped out of that again, a lot of dropping out, dropped out of that right before selection started. So I didn't even do selection. I decided that I'd just be regular infantry. It didn't really, <laughs> so to be honest, it didn't still didn't feel like I was like in the right place. Really? Yes. Didn't feel like I was in the right place. Cause it's like, now I'm like, I never had any dreams or aspirations to be in the military. <laughs> right. And now I'm with all these guys who are like, these are like extremely fit guys. You know, I was, I was reasonably fit cause I play a lot of basketball, but these guys are on a whole nother level. And they seem to to have a drive to be in this special forces unit that I just didn't have. Okay. That's what they wanted. They wanted so bad to be in this unit. And I just didn't, I didn't have that. I just, I joined because I needed something to do. And when I went through recruit school, they gave me an aptitude test, a test, I guess, how your aptitude. Right. And I fucking aced it. So they were like, you don't need to be a regular soldier. You could do this or do that or do that. And I was like, I don't really care. <laughs> I don't really care. I just need to do something. Is there a, like a cartoon about you? <laughs> maybe, maybe there <laughs> should the be. Maybe there should be. But I was, yeah, I was like, I don't really care. I just, I need to like, I need something. You know, there needs to be like, I can't just, you know, just bum along the rest of my life. You know. Yeah. Which, in hindsight now, it was a wonderful decision. Wonderful decision to be, to join the military. It was a great decision. Yeah. Even if it didn't go exactly as planned, and that will, you know, to join the Special Forces wasn't my plan when I joined, you know. And um, I think that's probably why when it came to right before selection, I lacked preparation, you know, because I was just like, well, whatever. Yeah. I'm going to, you know, cruising along. And then, so when I decided not to do selection, I went to the commander of the company and he was talking to me about my career paths 
Like, if you're not going to do selection, obviously you can't stay at the Special Forces Unit. So I was in Sydney at Holsworthy Barracks, and um, my choices were go up to Townsville in Queensland, some infantry units up there, Brisbane as well, maybe. And then the other choice I had was go across the road. So still in Holsworthy Barracks, there was like the main street in Holsworthy Barracks. This unit was on this side. Third battalion of the Royal Australian Regiment, parachute battalion, was right on the other side, still in Holsworthy Barracks. So all I had to do was move, like I had whatever the army had issued me, you know, a trunk and a couple of boxes. So it's like, all I had to do was move from, carry those like three things from this unit over to that unit. Yeah. And then I get to stay in Sydney. Okay. And we're like, probably like, you know, maybe a 45 minute drive from the city or so, something like that, maybe less. So there's like all of Sydney there, you know, now like, sweet, I'm in Sydney. He also said to me, well, they're a parachute battalion, so you'll have to jump. And I was like, all right, that sounds cool. That's literally, that was my response to him. All right, that sounds cool. Yeah. Um, never before in my life I ever thought about jumping out of a plane. I'd never, had, never had it occurred to me that I want to go jump out of a plane. Never once. Yeah. Yeah. So then I moved over to three, to the third battalion, three hour out, we called it. So I'm just a regular private in an infantry unit. 2006, I went and did, went to jump school. First time I jumped out of a plane, basic static line course. Which they, which we run out in Nara, which is a couple of hours south of Sydney. So I did that. That's the first time I ever jumped out of a plane. That hurt a lot. Yeah. You're a big dude as well. So you know uh, what it's like. Yeah. That was a few pounds lighter when I was 18. Yeah. So <laughs> I mean, I, I was, I was definitely a few pounds lighter than I am now, but I'm still six foot six and over 200 pounds. So I would, I would, I would crash in hard. Yeah. Every time. So it wasn't. So this isn't when you fell in love with the sport. No, no, I didn't. I didn't really like static line jumping. Yeah, it was not a pleasant experience for me, um, just because I would land quick. Yeah, you know, like you're the last one. You're the first one out of the. Oh, what is it? The last one out of the plane and the first one to land. Because I would just beat everyone down because I'm just like so much heavier than everyone. Yeah. So no, I didn't love static line jumping. Yeah. But I did it anyway because that was my job. Right, you had to uh, stay in Sydney. I got to stay in Sydney and I did my job. I was actually decent at my job. Of course, I'm a big guy, so they gave me the machine gun. I carried the machine gun for a long time. Yeah. I went on a few deployments from there. I went to Solomon Islands. Familiar with that place? It's north of Australia. Yeah, haven't been. Near, right next to Papua New Guinea, I think. World War, some of World War II was actually fought there. Um, yeah. I know the Americans had some presence in the Solomon Islands, Papua New Guinea. Definitely the Americans had some presence there in World War II. But it was a peacekeeping mission. They sent us there just for a show of force, basically. That wasn't a fun trip. It was super hot, super humid, very uncomfortable. And we, we just, we'd patrol around and just walk around basically or drive around and looking for anyone trying to start trouble. But generally the people were really pleasant and really nice. And yeah. we stayed there for like six weeks. I actually know a guy who got killed in the Philippines in oh, like yeah? a terrorist attack. Yeah. Oh, really? Yeah. Yes. Like most, you know, Americans wouldn't know about but yeah. it's i don't think it was technically like part of the global war on terror yeah but you know people think oh, i'm going to deployment to the philippines like you know, it's probably like peacekeeping but no man hmm. yeah 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 we, it was a peacekeeping peacekeeping mission pretty short yeah i think it was only like six or seven weeks went back to australia and then from there we started training for iraq so I went to Iraq between late 2006 into 2007. 
and it was um, mostly in Baghdad, all in Baghdad. Yeah. We had an embassy. We probably still have one there in Baghdad. And half of that rotation, I was part of the protection for the embassy. And then half of it, we did other things. It was actually right at the time when they were trying, um, what's his name, Saddam Hussein? Yeah. So they were trying him at the time. And I remember that because part of my, one of my posts was on the top of the courthouse where they were trying him and they would bring him in all the time. So I remember that. So I did, I did like, I think six, almost seven months in Iraq. We didn't really get into any, like, any combat action because we were just mainly just a security force. The only things we really saw was like a lot of, there was still like a lot of indirect fire at the time. So all the time, every day, there was like some sort of mortar or rocket or something landing close, Mm. which is the first time I actually like experienced like anything like close happening to me. Like um, I remember one day we would, I was, I was driving, driving an armored land cruiser and, um, Remember they had those big concrete walls they put everywhere? Yeah. The big T walls, we used to call them. Yeah. It's huge concrete walls that we put everywhere. And there's one, like, we're driving along and there's one, like, we're driving, there's a big concrete wall right next to us. All of a sudden, like, right on the other side of this concrete wall, there's, like, a m- massive, like, indirect round had come in and hit. And there's, like, a big, like, mushroom cloud over the wall and, like, like all the dust coming over the vehicle and stuff. And it was, like, if that wall hadn't have been there, I was, like, I wonder what would have happened. But So that was the first time anything landed close to me. And that's probably the worst thing that happened to me on that trip, which is pretty, you know, pretty, pretty chill when you think about it. Like I was fine. We were all fine. I was in an armored car. There was a concrete wall in between us. So it was just a big bang, a lot of dust. And then we drove, we drove back into the embassy. That was, that was it. So I remember that was like, maybe that was like the first time where I actually like thought like, cause this was early on when it like really hit home. Like this is real. Like this, like, yeah, like, you know, you get unlucky you could die yeah so, so like summer vacation yeah so maybe that that kind of hit at home that you know you're in you're in a bad place but um the rest of the deployment pretty went like went pretty smooth for me the only thing that i really really remember is we was the embassy was right next to the hospital so the u.s hospital that all the u.s casualties from nearby would come to they had the helicopter pads right next to our accommodation. And we actually manned the gate that led into our embassy was actually the same gate that led into the hospital. So all the American troops and anyone that wanted care would drive through our gate. And that was one of my picket points where I would stand, stand guard um, when I was doing rotation through there. And that's really the first time I really started to see some fucked up shit. Like I remember seeing guys come into the Humvees and their mates are all shot up and blown up and stuff, you know, and I'm sitting there on guard and I'm like opening the gate and there's just like, you know, dead bodies and people shot up and things that you would see like that. You know, some people with their half their heads blown off and things like that coming through the gate. And um, surprisingly, that stuff never bothered me. What bothered me was their mates. You know, like, you know what it's like being like close with, with your with your army buddies you know yeah like that the camaraderie you build there is like nothing else that i've ever experienced you know and so when i saw their mates how how upset they were when i saw that emotion that's what i remember like the 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 images of the, the the gruesome images and stuff i don't remember so much but 
I definitely remember seeing their emotions in their faces. That really got to me. And the other thing that used to get to me too at that place was um, like Iraqis would come there too and some would get sent away and some would some would leave with, you know, their family members dead and stuff like that. Yeah. Or their kids are dead. And it's sort of seeing the seeing the human emotion, like the real like extreme human emotion. That's what affected me the most. Yeah. Not actually seeing the stuff. Because I witnessed more of that stuff later in my military career as well. That never seemed to bother me. Yeah, I think there's like, you know, something about, uh, can't really recall any kind of like study or whatever, but I know they're out there. But like the the thing that you feel more is the human connection yeah. than, you know, than like any kind of crazy, tough or dangerous shit that happens to you. Yeah. And, you know, it sounds like grim, but like when they do studies about like veteran suicide, I think I read in a book somewhere that, an equal number of veterans kill themselves who don't have combat experience than they, you know, as ones that do. Yeah. So it's kind of like you don't go down this dark path because you saw, you know, some brains and guts and stuff. Yeah. Maybe, maybe some people do, but I think for most people it's like something else. It's yeah. the, you know, it's the loss of like community uh-huh. purpose camaraderie that kind of thing so yeah like seeing the not the guy who's all fucked up but like as yeah. you said his buddy who's like yeah. going through all of this yeah, yeah. He's shit best with mate. him and yeah, probably like yeah. replaying everything that just happened uh-huh. and trying to think of like you know you start doing the what if game yeah like you know something else could have gone a different way and then it would have been some mm-hmm. right he would be okay or it would have been me or somebody else instead yeah yeah yeah, yeah. so yeah uh, that's that. That was sort of yeah, my first sort of experience, like out of my shell, I guess, because I was very, very much in a shell up until my military career. Yeah. So yeah. So that was that. That was that. Yeah, I went to Iraq then, and a lot of boredom on that trip as well. And then I went home, and it pretty much, I think this is when it sort of really started to settle in that I didn't want to be an infantry soldier. Maybe it was after my next deployment. I think it was uh, no, it was after my next deployment, after Iraq. Back to the battalion, I went to mortar. I went and did mortars, so I was a mortarman. Mm. So I went to mortar platoon, got deployed to Afghanistan in two thousand eight. You start jumping mortars then too. We used to. If, we used to jump. We used to in the ground hard enough. We used to jump in mortars too. Yeah. yeah. So, but the mortars would go in. Um, they wouldn't go on you, so you wouldn't. You wouldn't carry the mortars. They would go on. Can't remember what they called it, but there was a like a separate unit that they would go with like they'd be strapped in these boxes and then they'd go out and that box would have a parachute on it and you'd yeah. follow that out yeah, okay so you'd just have you your jump pack. in like the tube and the plate and all that stuff too. yeah so all that stuff would go in the box and you'd have your pack and your weapon yeah, okay and you just follow it all out and then yeah. go and find it yeah so i'm pretty sure that's how it worked that well, was a while ago i've forgotten so much but um yeah so i went to afghanistan that was um that was an interesting trip Again, like we were more sort of a security detachment than like going and going find bad people. Like we went out there, like our job wasn't to find bad people. Mm. You know, I was an infantry soldier, you know, carrying a big heavy machine gun, just walking through through Afghani villages all day, every day. It's stinking hot. All I did was like get no sleep and walk and walk, carry heavy shit. That's all I did for like six months. 
six months we stayed out and we stayed one job we did because we were we were attached to this engineering unit and the engineering unit was building an fob so basically it was our job to protect them and it took them three months more than three months to build this thing so the whole time we were just out in the field for three months as long as time i ever spent like just living out of a pack yeah we had vehicles and stuff too but that was a good trip but that was that was a trip where i actually like one of the a really close friend who I still talk to now, he actually asked me to do a podcast when I when I get home too. But um, that's when we became really good friends. He was my 2IC. We spent a bunch of time in a pit together. The whole trip we were like opposed next next to each other. Yeah. Yeah. So I have, no, I have good good memories of that trip. Um, but that was, a, that was a hard, that was probably the hardest deployment I did. Yeah. Um, didn't really get into much action, but it was physically it was really austere. Yeah, really physically demanding. Yeah, physically demanding. We're always out every day, just just the typical infantry grunt shit we just did. Dig a fighting time. position. Yeah, we dug, dug, yeah, we dug shit. Yeah, we got, you know, sitting, sleeping in a sand pit and, you know, um, yeah. setting up machine guns, machine gun pits and, you know, doing patrols, and like eight, nine, ten-hour patrols, night patrols, all types of stuff like that. Mm. Um, got some some good memories from that trip because of the, the, the boys, you know, because of the section I was with the boys, they're the good memories I have of that trip for sure. All the friends I had, like a couple of them reached out to me recently, actually, I sent some photos from back in the, from that trip. That was, so that was, it was a really hard trip, but it's like definitely glad I did it. Yeah. You know, glad I did. It. And then this is when I started jumping more. So this is when my jumping stuff started. So, through in my Afghanistan trip when I, I was uh, one day I was just I had a had some free time so I was sitting in my bunk and I think I had my laptop and I was watching a movie and a friend stuck his head opened the door stuck his head in the door didn't even come in the room he just stuck his head in the door I remember his name Travis Fleming Travis good friend I I wonder what he's up to lately but um he stuck his head in the door and he's like Hey, Manny, you want to get your free fall ticket when we get back to Oz? And I looked at him and I was like, sure, why not? That was it. That was that, that, like, interaction over. Yeah. So he went on about his day and I went about my day. And then sure like enough. passing thought. Not a passing thought. It was just like, yeah, whatever. <clears throat> then we get back to Oz and him and I think three other guys from the battalion we all bought um, full A license packages from Sydney Skydivers in Picton, New South Wales. I think it cost us like twenty four hundred bucks or something each, or something like that. So we went down and did our ground training, and then the next day we went and skydived. So I'm like, now I'm now I'm skydiving. Yeah. My first skydive, and I was fucking. I through all the shit I'd already been through, like in Afghanistan, like there was more more shit I saw there that I haven't t- talked about but um, through all the shit I saw in Iraq and all the shit I saw in Afghanistan even I think even jumping static line this is right now is I'm the most scared right now <laughs> jump one even like even jump two jump one I'm more scared than I've ever been yeah like fucking terrified really terrified yeah absolutely terrified um so I remember like not sleeping much the night before. I mean, when I did my static line course, I didn't sleep much either, but I think the free force stuff, I was more scared. Um, definitely more scared. I know I was more scared because 
like I'd have like bodily functions would like happen more often. <laughs> you know what I mean? Get, I'll, shitless. I'll, yes, exactly. <laughs> and one of another friend of mine, Shane Brown, fucking great guy. He described it to me one day. And I was like, yeah, you're scared. This is why this is happening because you're scared. And I'm like, yeah, I am scared. I'm terrified. Um, but I used to like halfway to the drop zone. You know, we're not even there yet. I used to get start getting those knots in my stomach. Yeah. Um, you know, really painful, painful knots in your stomach. You know, that everything's contracting and constricting. And it's like, and you just, you're, you're, you're holding in. Sorry, this is going to get vulgar, but you're holding in poo. Like literally, like like everything's squeezed. Like because like if you if you if you if you release anything, like it's going to be a mess everywhere. Because that's how scared you are. Um, so that's what I experienced. Like halfway to the drop zone, and then I get to the drop zone and I have to run to the toilet. And I and go and use the toilet, and then I come back outside. It's like a miserable sport. Oh, to be it was horrible. It was horrible, and it's amazing that I continued. But and then I I I go back, and then I go to the manifest, and I. I'd get a, I'd get an instructor and I'd manifest myself. So now, of course, now that I'm actually on a, I know that I'm on a lift. So now I'm scared and now the, the fear comes back and I run back to the toilet. And I, this is not even an exaggeration. I would go back to the toilet and I would poo some more. Right, I don't know how, I don't know where it came from, but it was just like kept coming out. And then I'd come back and I'd have to wait around a little bit and then they'd call my name on the loudspeaker. It's time to gear up. And so, of course, I'm back at the toilet. So three times I would go to the toilet. So right before I geared up, I'd have to run back and I'd, I'd, I would poo again. So more poo would come out. And that's just how scared I was. And then I'd gear up and I went and did my first skydive. Um, this is just for the first one or is for like so this, for this a series? Kept, of no, this kept happening for probably the, to this degree, probably at least 50 jumps in. Jesus. Yeah. And then I used to, then it's got a little better. Like I would only poop twice, you know, so up to like, you know, a hundred jumps in. Now I'm getting a little better, you know, I got to, you know, I ain't got to poop twice. And then, you know, get 200, 200, 300 jumps in. I only got to poop once, you know, till now when it's like, you know, it's whatever now, yeah. but that, that's, well, that's, we're how, very proud of you. that's how scared I was. Like when I, when I tell people that I was scared of skydiving, when I started, yeah, like it's real, shitless. it's real. I was literally scared shitless. Yeah. I was scared so much, so scared that I had no more poop to poop. It was just all gone. So, um, but yeah, I kept, I kept skydiving. Um, and I think, I think I wouldn't have kept skydiving if it wasn't for a few of my friends. Um, Shane Brown, and um, he he would drive me to the drop zone. He would pick me up from home, and he he would drive me out there. He would jump with me. And- so if you this like terrified fifty hundred two hundred jumps, not terrified, but still like you know still, I almost still, ex- still doubting myself. I I'm almost expected now. you to say like, yeah, when on my first jump, loved it, knew that I was hooked, and knew it was the no. thing for me. No, that wasn't my experience. Okay, no. But so when did that like when did you reach that point and like how I think I reached I mean, how the, fragile was your relationship uh, with the sport <laughs> up until then? The thing is though, in the moment I'm enjoying myself. Yeah. So I knew that much. I knew that much from jump one that in the moment, because that's this is a unique thing that forces you to be in the moment. I think this is one reason why I enjoy it so much. 
because it forces you to be in the moment. The instant you leave that plane, there's no going back. You can't take it back. If you're here now, you're falling to the earth. And if you don't save your life, then it's done, right? So you can't, in my opinion, you can't be more in the moment than on a skydive. I think that's why one reason why it's so exhilarating. Yeah. When you leave that plane, you know, you have that freedom and that you now you and you have the freedom and you're in the moment. You don't care you don't care about, you know, the argument you had with your missus last night, you don't care about how much debt you have, you don't care about, you know, the jackass that flipped you off on the way there. You know, you don't care about any of that. Yeah. All of that has disappeared now. Everything is gone and you're just skydiving. So I think that's one of the reasons why I persisted with all those those feelings that I had of fear and anxiety and yeah. the doubts. I remember in the sitting in the plane, like even on jump two, and I've got all all these feelings are back, and I'm just sitting in the plane, just like, why the heck am I in the plane again? Literally questioning myself, like, I, why am I in here again? Like this is stupid. Why am I back in here? This feels terrible. You know. Was that something that you had experienced ever before that being so much in the moment that everything else kind of took a backseat? Maybe, maybe without realizing it, but I think to that level, no. But not like something that was reliably repeatable or attainable. I don't think so. No. Is that one of the main reasons why you, you stuck with it? I think so. The other reason is I just spent so much money. (laughs) Sunk cost. I just spent all this money. I was like, I got to use it all. So I got to at least finish my A license. Right. So I got to at least finish my A license. Um, So I did. I finished my A license. And then, like I said, one of my friends, Shane Brown and Andrew Stewart, who is still a very close friend of mine. And he's actually moved over here to America too. I see him all the time. Still, we were still really close. He helped. He, he was new to jumping too at the time. So we would jump together and he would, um, bring me along to his escapades and we would travel to other drop zones and do jumps and stuff. Um, and it's kind of strange because out of the five of us that went and did our A license course, I was clearly the most terrified. I was the last to finish the course. Hmm. Um, I was the only one to continue after that course. Yeah. The only one to keep jumping. Yeah. yeah and I've been jumping ever since then. That, that was in 2008 that I started that. Shortly after that course, yeah, I kept jumping civilian and I was still still at the infantry battalion in Holsworthy. But now, I think now is about the time when I realized that I don't want to be an infantry soldier anymore. Yeah. I made some attempts to do a different, I think you guys call it MOSs here. And I actually tried to be a geek. We call them geeks, like a network administrator, but in the army. Yeah. So I tried to do that, but I didn't get rejected. There was just no places for me. So that was on hold. So I couldn't go and do that. I tried to get that done. And then I had another opportunity that came up. So we're in, I think we're in sort of, we're in 2009 now. Yeah. So in 2009, I was at the battalion. I was bloody miserable. Nothing going on, just doing regular training, exercises, all that type of stuff. And I had done, I can't remember when I had done it, but I had done like a three month language course in Melbourne, maybe after Iraq or definitely after Iraq, I'd done a three month language course of Arabic and um, I did really good did really well seemed to like find like that was something I was capable of doing learning a language so I did really good and then 2009 I was having a lot of like mental health issues 
which were pretty bad when I look back at it now. Um, things that I still struggle with today, but I'm sort of getting over. But anyway, I won't talk about that. But so I was actually getting help for these issues at the time. And um, one of the suggestions was that I go back to the language school and, and study Arabic. But the year-long course, was, so it was like it was a diploma of Arabic studies yeah. that they paid for. You know, so I was still in the military, but they shipped me out to Melbourne, and I, I attended the uh, Defence Force School of Languages for a whole year in 2010. How was it like? Uh, you know, if you don't want to go into detail, whatever, but like managing you know, mental health issues while on active duty and people either being like receptive to or trying to find you this new like job title or this, uh, you know, yeah. opportunity to go to language school versus like it being a taboo. I didn't feel any sort of pressure about it being taboo or like, you know, you just toughen up or anything like that. I didn't feel, I think at that time we actually had a good amount of support in the, in the Australian Defence Force for, for anyone that had mental health issues. Mm. I think we had adequate, like, um, places or people to see to go and get help. Yeah. Because at the time, like, I knew something was wrong and eventually it just took, it just took me being fed up with it, basically, to go and seek help. And as soon as I sought help, then I got help. Yeah. And, um... Part of it was like, I'm very much like if I have something to do, I have focus and I have goals, then then usually I'm, I'm good. It's usually when I'm sitting around and don't have any sort of focus or goals, that's when things start to creep back in. Yeah. And so I think that was part of the plan, like give me something to focus on for a year while I'm continuing to seek help, you know, because I still sought help when I was out in Melbourne. But, yeah. Um, and then, yeah, while I was in Melbourne studying language, I continued to skydive. There was a drop zone in a place called Nagambi, which is um, about an hour out of downtown Melbourne. So I would go there on my weekend and continue to skydive. And then after the school, instead of going back to Holsworthy, the 3rd Battalion, they, they sent me to the 2nd Battalion in Townsville. And that was easy. The, those two years were easily the worst years in my military time, those two years in Townsville. Um, is it just like a shitty place to be or what? So Townsville's not too bad. It's not great. Okay. Everything around like North Queensland is fucking awesome. Mm. I did a bunch of cool stuff up there when I was there. I loved my time there, hated my time in the military there. Okay. Um, so there's that important distinction. If you want to go to North Queensland, go. It's, it's, it's awesome. Yeah. Um, Were you doing just like what like translation or intelligence so or something like i that? did i didn't do anything language related okay that's yes. thing they sent you yes so I, I did nothing language related i actually remember speaking to my career manager on the phone about him wanting me this was so ridiculous i can't remember i can't believe they did this he was like i'm going to send you to, to second battalion i was like cool he's like you know i'm from the third battalion right i just assumed i'd go back to the third battalion he's like no i want you to to go there because I want you to utilize your new language skill. I was like, cool. Is there a lot of Arabic speaking in Queensland? No. He said to me, they're getting deployed to Afghanistan. I was like, cool. I'm happy to go back to Afghanistan. (laughs) They don't speak Arabic in (laughs) Afghanistan. (laughs) I was said that to him and said, they don't speak Arabic in Afghanistan. He's like, uh, I don't care. He pretty much didn't care. Lovely. He didn't care. And I was like, how do you not know that? How do you not know that? 
I, I like they speak like Pashto and Dari in Afghanistan. Bet you you took a straw. Well, not people in the military, but if you took a straw poll yeah. on the you know on the street, you would probably get some of that response. Afghanistan is it's not this, an Arabic country. No, yeah, yeah. No, but it's like this uh, this dude. If you're managing people's careers, yeah, yeah, yeah. No, it's so, fucking hilarious. So I got sent to the second battalion, and when I got there. I, I'd already done like a good stint in the military. Like I was like, it was 2010. So I'm like five or six years in. And at this time I'm overdue a promotion, you know, but now I'm in a new battalion. So no one knows who I am or what I've done. So I pretty much get treated like, you know, I'm fresh out of recruits call, yeah. which is kind of sucky, you know? Yeah. And they did go to Afghanistan, but they left, I think equivalent to a whole company back in Australia. So I was left behind. But then at this stage, I, I was still jumping in this stage. So there was a diesel mechanic that was also into skydiving that I met at the drop zone and he was posted at the same place. So now we're carpooling together to a couple of different drop zones that we would go to. We would go to Air, a town called Air, A-Y-R, which was about an hour drive away. And then sometimes we would drive north towards Cairns, like a three-hour drive to get to a drop zone, stay there all weekend, jump, drive back for, for work. Mm. So we would do, I would do that every chance I got. And this is sort of the time when I started to realize that I wanted to keep jumping. Like, this is like, I want to keep doing this. Yeah. I was really getting into it and really having a good time with my jumping. And I was like, that's when like sort of the first thought was in my head that maybe I could become, be an instructor one day. So now I'm, you know, I'm sort of two, 300 jumps in almost, maybe 200 jumps in, but still not very experienced jumper. You know, I'm still very inexperienced jumper. still not very good. Yeah. Still have none, zero tunnel time because we don't have tunnels in Australia yet. Yeah. So I'm still very, very much a novice jumper, but you know, having a good time doing it. And um, are you, are you thinking of it as like expanding your hobby into being able to teach other people or are you actually starting to like creep up on a career transition type of mindset? I'm not thinking career transition at the moment. I'm not thinking of leaving the military right now. At this stage of my, at this stage of my military career, I'm just thinking of it as a, like a, I guess an inevitable step in like skydiving. People that skydive all the time, yeah. Eventually, like the 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 peers or the people that I'm looking up to in the skydiving community, are going from you know, A license, B license, C license, whatever they're doing, and then coaching, and then becoming you know AFFI instructors, being tandem operators, and then this is sort of how the skydiving communities like this is what I see them doing. So I'm like, okay, maybe I want to do that. Maybe, maybe this is for me and I want to do that. You know, so that's sort of, that's when it's sort of, I think when I was up in Townsville, when that sort of first started like developing in my brain that I wanted to teach skydiving and be a skydiver and, you know, just keep jumping. Yeah. That's, that's when that first started happening. And I, I, I had a good mentor up there that, that did mentor that thought. His name's Alan Moss. Alan Moss, who owned the airdrop zone definitely encouraged me to go down that route and pursue that. And then that's when I decided to apply for the parachute training school in Nara, the Army Parachute Training School. It's on a Navy base. Um, the Navy base is called HMS Albatross. It's about two hours south of Sydney. So I was like, this is good, right? So I'm thinking in my head, this is good. I get to go and jump. So you're going to be for it. I'm still gonna, Army folks. Yeah, I'm still going to be in the military. 
So I don't, I'm not like, I have to change, like, I have to get out of the army. So I still got like guaranteed income and all the benefits that come with being in the military. Yeah. And I'm going back to almost Sydney, two hours away from Sydney. At this stage too, I got half, half of my family has moved from Perth to Sydney. Well, my sister has moved from Perth to Sydney. Actually, I think two of my sisters were living there at the time and my nephew's there. So now it's like, okay, cool. So now I've got family close. I'll be jumping, still in the military, still get paid. This would be good. There were some issues with me getting into a parachute training school, but I got in, thankfully. My friend who I spoke about earlier, Andrew Stewart, he was he was at the school at the time. There was another guy that I knew that knew me from the second battalion too, and we jumped together. He knew I was into jumping and had a had a bit of a passion for it. His name was Nathan Smith. So those two guys put in good words for me for the RSM of the parachute training school, Andrew Shaw. So when I put in my application. He knew about me, and so I was lucky enough to get posted there. So the reason I was lucky to get there is because at the time, the school was sort of transitioning into, traditionally, the school would take privates and NCOs from the 3rd Battalion because we're the, we're the parachute battalion. Yeah. So part of your rotation through promotion and things like that would be you do a year or two at the parachute school, go back to the battalion, year or two at the parish school, back at the battalion, and you go through ranks. And it's like it's a training establishment, you know. But um, at the time, the third battalion was starting to go through a re-roll, re so they were actually not going to be a parachute battalion anymore. And they were, I think, I believe that Australian Defence Force just wanted the Special Forces Unit to use the parachuting role. So my commanders at the second battalion were like, this really discouraged me from putting in that application. They were like, they're not taking any more privates from, you know, infantry privates to the school. And thankfully, I didn't listen to them and I put the application in anyway. So we were like support for the whole school. So that we'd have static line courses come through. We'd have free fall courses come through and all the different suites of all those things like jump master and tandems and, you know, we had camera operator. We had yeah. static, static, static line, um, Jump master and um, static line instructor and free fall instructor. All those, we, it was all, everything parachute related went through the school. Parachute related as in a person jumping out of a plane. Yeah. Yeah. So part of that support was I need to do military free fall. So I went and did basic military free fall course. So that's the first time I did military free fall. But at this stage, I've got maybe almost 300 jumps. Yeah. So it was pretty it was pretty, easy on your instructor. It was easy on my instructor. And like, I remember my first ruck jump didn't go so well because I still have zero tunnel time yeah. and I've never jumped a ruck before. Mm. So that was new to me. And yeah, I remember the ruck being extremely heavy and not very well um, balanced. Mm -hmm. Me as an instructor now, I would not give my student the ruck that I jumped with. <laughs> <laughs> I'd be like, no, that's going to be a little challenging for you. Yeah. Um, but I, I, I managed. I wasn't great, but I managed. Um, we had at the school, we had a, a camera operating course. So we had a, actually a civilian would come and run that course. Great guy. His name was Shane Sparks. Very crazy human being, but knows what he's doing. So he taught me how to like operate a camera in free fall. I started doing that. I did a bunch of that. I did hundreds of jumps, just jumping out with students and filming, filming tandems because we had a tandem course as well. Yeah. So um, I'd film tandems and students and jump on the weekends. So my jump numbers were going up and up and up now. Yeah. And you're getting like a little certification mm -hmm. here and there yeah. and like kind of getting your Swiss Army knife built out. Yep. Yeah. And this is where over the next few years, I'm now I'm doing, now I've got hundreds and hundreds of jumps and then they put me on a tandem course. I do a tandem course. Yeah. 
got promoted so that I could do the freefall instructor course as well. In there, I also did a military history tour to Vietnam. That was cool. Whole another story, but that was really sweet. I actually went to Khaesan, which is an American, big American battle there with the, with the, with the Viet Cong at Khaesan. I went there. That was pretty cool. What, do you do this for like professional development? They send you yeah, all these they, tours? They, they have like the, um, the RSM of the army has like a thing where he will like, he will have um, enlisted people, NCOs or whatever, like apply to do it. Mm-hmm. And just, you just basically, you just write a letter to him and apply for it. And then the military send you, they send us on this history tour. Vietnam, I think some people went to France and other places that Australia has had, you know, yeah. conflicts. Yeah. And we just basically would visit the sites and explore the history and stuff like that. It was a sweet two weeks in Vietnam. It was awesome. Nice. Yeah. And then um, I think I'm like probably like two and a half, three years into my posting at PTS, Parachute Training School PTS. And uh, I know in my head that uh, I can't stay here forever. They're not going to let me stay here forever. Right. You know. Three years was my posting. They extended it to four years. I think about halfway through that four years, around about the two-year mark, I, me and a friend flew to Charlotte, drove to Rayford, North Carolina, where the tunnel is that I work at now. We flew there, two of us, and we bought 10 hours of tunnel time each. For and, like uh, a year's pay? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, we bought 10 hours of tunnel time each, and we paid for coaching. Okay. So we did that and we spent three weeks there in Rayford flying um, just, you know, because we're skydivers. We love skydiving. We love flying. So we did that. And then I'm, one day I'm in, um, hanging out with my, my coach in his house and uh, my friend Andrew's there as well. Um, and uh, they're talking about like Andrew's getting a job there and stuff, but he's not, he's not exactly a legal citizen yet. He is now. But... Um, so he was working for them for free because they couldn't legally pay him. Um, and I was like, sitting there, I was like, well, heck, you could pay me, but I'm legal. And everyone was like, what? And I was like, yeah, I was born here. Surely that makes me legal, right? I didn't, had no idea. I was like, surely that makes me legal, doesn't it? Yeah. And they're like, you are born here? I was like, yeah, Atlantic City. I probably have a social security number. <laughs> and so my coach was like, well, yeah, just come back and get a job. And then I was like, heck, I could, that's actually feasible. Like that could actually, I could actually do that. I could come back and I could get a job at the tunnel. Hmm. You know, and then now I'm, now all I'm doing is flying and skydiving, which at this stage is like all I want to do. Like there's no way I want to go back to an infantry battalion. You know, like I think finally something's clicking with me. You know, I'm in my thirties now. (laughs) So it's like finally something's clicking, you know. Finally, something's making sense. Like, I can do this. Is this the first time? So this is the first time that that seed's been planted in my head. Move back to America and, and, and just do this stuff full time. Is this the first time that you had something where it didn't feel like work? You know, it was all those, like, yeah. inspirational quotes mm-hmm. and shit mm-hmm. about, like... Yeah, and to this day, like, like what I'm doing now, it doesn't feel like work. Yeah, it nice. doesn't feel like work. Like when I'm out there jumping with you guys, like it doesn't feel like work. It's it's extremely rewarding at the same time. Like I don't feel like I'm working and it's every day it's rewarding in some way. Yeah. Yeah. Every day. Um, even at the tunnel, the tunnel that's why I haven't left the tunnel yet, even though I've been there like five or six years now. Cause it's still rewarding for me. Certain parts, not all of it. Some you know, pros and cons to everything, but it's still rewarding for me. So 
you do this one trip to Rayford. Yes. You go back. Yes. And you're just like, do you guys do contracts? You just like write out a contract? Or so you no, we don't. We, we do a contract. So when I signed, I had a four-year return of service. Four years I had to give back to the military. Yeah. At this stage, it's like I'm um, like 10 years in now. Okay. So you can um, just like put in your papers. You put in your papers and leave. Okay. Um, but you got to put in like obviously like um, I think it was six months notice we have to give okay. before we can leave, and go through all the normal you know process medical and all those all that bullshit they you know the rings they have you run through. Right. Um, Same ones as when you come in. Yes. Yeah. So at this stage, at, but at this stage when I went back home, like I wasn't ready to leave because of other things. Like I had, I had like debts that i had to pay off i had to sort my life out basically before i could just move to another country like i couldn't just drop everything and move those things that i had to take care of yeah because i knew that i was going to be moving to a job that was a very 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 significant pay pay cut you know like i was going to be earning substantially less money yeah and i had i had some debt so i was like okay i got to pay this debt off before i could go and do that because i just couldn't I couldn't live having doing that job and having the debt I had. So that was the plan now. Like, so luckily my last year there, I was told I was deployed again. I was deployed back to Iraq. The reason I was deployed back, because I'm not in a combat unit now. I'm in a training unit. Yeah. Um, so the reason I was deployed back to Iraq was because I did, because I, I'd done the Arabic course. So I was attached to commando, the unit that I was first originally supposed to be in. That, that, that I never got in. Yeah. And I was attached to them as a linguist. Um, even though my Arabic sucked at this stage, like I hadn't done any Arabic in years. I'm like, you know, I probably can't do that anymore. <laughs> they're like, and they were like, ah, oh, we don't care. We're going to send you anyway. And that yeah. trip was cool. Like the, the boy, the guys I hung out who were into commando, the commandos there, they were cool. I had a good time in that trip. But uh, luckily when we get deployed, we get paid a lot and it's tax free. So about halfway through the deployment, like I, put everything into my debt and it was all paid off. So now it's like, now I'm saving money. Like, you know, I'm like, I think at the end of it, I had like $25,000 saved, maybe $30,000 saved. And I had, um, before I went back to Australia, I had, I had already told my command that I'm, I'm going to be discharging when I get back. And so I got back February, 2016. I filled out all the paperwork. I spoke to my CSM. I was like, he's like, he, luckily, he was he was really awesome. He was like, Manny, I have to send you on leave because you just got back from deployment. I was like, check. Hear me out. I'm going to leave. I'm going to discharge. He's like, cool. I, was like, I said to him, give me a couple of weeks to sort out my medical, sort out all my stuff. I got to sell my car. I got to I got to move all my stuff out of the barracks because I was back in the barracks because I was trying to save money so I could yeah. so I could pay off my debt. So Do you I have could, like no belongings by the time you came mm, over? So... Um, yeah, so I still had some belongings, but I'd gotten rid of a lot of things yeah. in this two weeks. I was just like, like giving things away, selling stuff, sold my van. And then I had oh, a few belongings. Yeah, I sold the van. Yeah. Oh, was, yeah, I was there. I loved that van, but, and then I went home to Perth to see my mum for a little bit. I had one suitcase full of skydiving gear and my, my, my rig and helmet and suits and whatever you need for skydiving. And I had another suitcase full of like clothes and stuff. And I got on the plane and I flew to Rayford 
And I walked into the tunnel and I was like, hey, can I get a job? And then a few months later, I started working there. I thought they gave you the job before. They did not give me the job before. It's just like, hey, here's an idea. There and you're like, just, fucking hey, I'm gonna, just, we're going to close out. This is two years later now. So oh, two years shit. has passed. But luckily, yeah, I got a, got a job there. And I worked my ass off at a tunnel for the first few years. And yeah. so basically, I just yeah, teach people, teach still teaching military how to skydive still, which I love. And then when I'm not doing that, I'm teaching civilians how to skydive and how to fly in a tunnel. So yeah. Yeah, that's pretty much all I do now. So, so you're a professional skydiver by definition, by definition I guess. Yeah, yeah, yeah. By definition, yeah. I read something about, like, you don't compete. Part of it is... You know, you're a giant. You got to find like uh, a team members that are your same size. Yeah, that's difficult. Yeah. Part of it is that you just love instructing so much. I really do. Yeah. And then, and part of it is like you actually don't enjoy competition that much. No. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. <laughs> exactly. And yeah. you and you talked about like even back uh, when you were playing basketball or just like. Like, what's your personal kind of relationship with competition? And does it just take away from the enjoyment for you? Yeah, I think, yeah, it, yeah, it does. There's been times in my life playing basketball younger where I, where I did feel that the competition drive me and push me a little bit harder. Yeah. Um, but I think that wasn't always the case and majority of the time that was not the case it sort of had a negative effect on me i think it's just part of my personality it definitely has a negative effect on me most of the the, the time mm-hmm. looking back now i can see how that ties with some of my mental health issues mm-hmm. um but yeah it definitely has a negative effect on me it really i really felt that like at towards the end of my basketball days where it stopped becoming fun like the reason i started playing basketball was because it was fun and when it stopped becoming fun, it, that's when it got serious, it stopped becoming fun. Mm-hmm. When it got like, obviously there's a serious element to skydiving and especially to military skydiving. Um, but if we're not getting some satisfaction out of it, you know, then for me anyway, as an instructor, I know for guys where it's just their job, like that doesn't matter. If you're not getting any enjoyment out of satisfaction out of it, too bad. You got to do it anyway. Yeah. Um, but for me as an instructor, like it's like if, or as a skydiver, you know, if I'm not getting joy and satisfaction out of doing it, then I'm not going to do it, I guess. I'm lucky in that way that I get that choice, you know. <laughs> to yeah. some people, a lot of people in the world, like, don't have that choice. Like, this sucks, but it's the only thing I got. i got to do it. Yeah. But, yeah, competition is never – competition has never been a, 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 dri- a big driver for me, and neither has money, funny enough. Mm. Money, the, the, the acquisition of money and things has never really driven me either. So, so what is it about like just the, I guess the joy of teaching people, the fulfillment, the day to day, Mm -hmm. like you're actually like a very gregarious person, easy to get along with, very calming, make for a good instructor. And a lot of times an instructor is kind of like implicitly an ambassador of the sport. Yes. Because the more positive an experience you have meeting somebody like you going on a tandem jump or learning to skydive really like sets the tone for that person going forward. 100%, so yeah. having like the most positive experience possible is going to be like way more impactful than say like, you know, 
you being like a world champion of something, but it's like, you know, but I'm a dick. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. 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 That's yeah. That's yeah. That's a good point. Yeah. So I, I feel like with my, I guess my instructional technique or my just like, I guess I'd like to think of it as bedside manner, mm-hmm. like a doctor has bedside manner, you know, um, skydiving for me was so intense when I started so intense so like emotionally intense yeah it's hard to perform when you're going through that as human beings you know our brains go do weird things when we're under that much you know we have fear and anxiety it's different for everyone yeah we're not all built the same we have different levels of that stuff but we all have some degree of it and i feel like if I can reduce some of that stress and some of those emotions, or if I can make someone feel more at ease or more comfortable, then the learning process is going to be easier for them. Mm-hmm. And they're going to, if I'm, they're already under high amounts of stress and anxiety and it's scary. Yeah. Maybe some of them don't want to admit it's scary, but it's scary. You know, yeah. by nature, it's scary. Yeah. Throwing well, yourself out of a plane. I mean, for a lot of people, yeah. it's just on their bucket list, right? For a lot of people. Yeah. And they'll go once. You know, I think like the distribution of, you know, people times in their life they've skydived, it's either zero or one or, one. or like a yeah. lot, but yeah. mostly it's zero or one. Zero or one. Yeah. It's not for everyone. That's for sure. But I try and like, like if I can come across as relaxed and calm and controlled and, you know, everything's cool. If I can give some of that to my student, mm-hmm. I feel like that helps. Yeah. So I don't want to add especially military people who are like, you know, probably already like, especially the elite units under high stress, extremely high tempo all the time, probably, you know, always tired because they're always go, 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 you know, and doing other activities that are extremely dangerous. Why would I want to add to that? If this ready, it's already, all those emotions are already bad enough. Part of my job, not just giving good instruction, Part of my job is helping them cope with some of those emotions. That's part of the job, in my opinion. And it's hard to teach someone when they're, when they're like, you know, you're an instructor. It's hard to teach someone when, you know, lights are on, but no one's home because they're just freaking the fuck out. Like yeah. you can't, you can't teach someone when they're like that. You can't communicate with someone when they're like that, you know, and you need to be able to communicate to someone in the sky. Yeah. So it helps if I was saying to some instructors just, just last week. One thing that can really, really make or break a skydive for a student, one thing that can help them is just flying right up to them into their face, getting right up close to them. You know, so you're only like, you know, you know, you're, you can, you know, you can almost blow onto their face and they'd feel it and just smile at them. Just a big smile like you're having the time of your life. And when they see that and recognize that, that can have an emotional response for them. You know, that can, that can put them at ease. They see a smiling, smiling face in front of them and all of a sudden now they're relaxed. You know, and now some of those fears and anxieties have gone. Yeah. And now I can communicate. Hey, check your altimeter. And oh, sweet. Cool. Hey, straighten your legs. Good. Awesome. You're doing a great job. So just little things like that. Like you're not just, you're not just giving information as a skydiving instructor. You're not just giving information. There's a whole lot more to it. I think that's that part's extremely rewarding too. You know, being able to get in someone's mind like that and put them at ease, 
yeah. you know, and make them feel like, you know, they're looked after and everything's cool, even though they're hurtling to the ground. <laughs> you know, if they don't save their life, I'm going to do it for them, hopefully. And if I don't do it for them, there's going to be a machine that does it for them. But no, nah, um, but that part's cool. So that part's rewarding. Yeah. And then just taking them from that jump one where they're going through all that stuff. And, you know, like jump one skydives is never perfect, you know. First time in the tunnel, it's never perfect. But taking them from that to like jumping out at night by themselves or in a team of other dudes, you know, it's it's night and they've got all this equipment strapped on them. Now they're jumping out and they're flying a canopy and hitting that spot where they're supposed to be. Like taking them from from nothing to that, that's extremely rewarding. Yeah. Yeah. You're just like giving someone this skill. You know what I mean? So... Uh, if you don't find any joy in rewarding, and you know, if you don't find any joy in that, you shouldn't be teaching. You know? How do you, how do you balance with like still teaching military and teaching either like civilians or like so you get like a little kid who mm-hmm. comes to the tunnel? Yeah, we do. Who yeah. Wants to fly around. Like, what's similar about it? What's different? What's different about it is military is very like very much a clear end state. With the military. When we get military guys and military course, there's an end state. There's a very specific reason and purpose why we're doing this. Um, when you have skydivers or kids or stuff, it's like generally a lot of times skydivers who aren't military jumpers, they're there for fun. Some of them are there to compete. Some of them enjoy competing. Mm-hmm. So I think that's the biggest difference between like civilian civilian jumping and military jumping like the goals the goals are different yeah the goals are way different ends of the spectrum really yeah the goals are completely different so it's it's nice to because i was in the military and doing that stuff it's like i understand the goals that the military has when it comes to military free fall military parachuting operations i understand why they're there I was also a civilian jumper. I still am. I started as a you know, civilian free-faller. So I understand that side too. Yeah. So I think I can mix and match between the two pretty easily. Yeah. Yeah. You've been thrown up on? Doing uh, yes. I've even th- – oh, I didn't mention that my first skydive, I threw up under canopy. Oh, nice. The very first skydive I did. I did everything fine. I deployed my own parachute. I'm under canopy and I started feeling sick, nauseous, and I threw up on my jumpsuit before I landed. My canopy, yeah. So that yeah. happened on my first skydive. Yeah. That's how scared I was. <laughs> my, uh, I had a passenger start throwing up. Uh, thankfully, he kind of like pushed off of me with his leg so he yeah. didn't get it on me uh, under canopy. Yeah. But it was all over the top of a parking lot. So hopefully no one was down there. Yeah. yeah. But I got other memorable jumps. Oh, I'm sure. Dubai over the palm. That was cool. Yeah. A couple of them. And one of them was with Michael Schumacher, even. Oh, yeah? He was, he was there jumping. He was sitting next to me in the plane. Does he jump? That was cool. He used to when he was alive. Yeah. Oh, yeah. sorry. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. I, yeah. I don't pay attention. That was, that was in 2010. So he was still alive and kicking, doing well. He actually saw like, Does he jump himself or just Yeah, no, yeah. He was, a, yeah. he was a fun jumper. Yeah, he was oh, all okay, about cool. it. Um, he assigned my logbook, too, which is cool. I think I still have that logbook. Hmm. Yeah, so that was a cool jump. Like, I hate Dubai, but that was a cool jump. And then- Early Beach, if you ever get the chance to go to Early Beach in uh, Queensland, that's a fun place to skydive. And then I did a skydive out of Busselton, Western Australia. That's south of Perth. 
And if you can imagine the, the west coast and the south coast of Western Australia, that little knob that's at the end there, the yeah. bottom. It was cool because it's flying up in the plane. You can see the coastline of the south, south and the west coast. You can sort of see all that. It just looked epic. Hmm. So that was, yeah, that was fun. Probably got mem- other memorable ones, but. One question we ask everybody on the show is, who are you today if you never joined the military? Oh, heck. Definitely wouldn't be jumping. Yeah. Uh, it's really hard to, to, to know that if I would have got my life together. I feel like I've got a really good life at the moment. Mm-hmm. Like if I feel like I sometimes often think about what I do right now, I jump out of planes and I fly around in a windy room for a living. That's what I do. None of that would happen. Like, what would I be doing? Heck, I don't know. I really, like, I don't know if I would have ever pulled it together, to be honest. I was so lost before the military. Yeah. Yeah, the military gave me so many positive things. Obviously, a lot of the things that happen in the military are very sucky, very miserable. But it does, it does give you good life experiences and it did definitely i think i think it developed my character in a positive way it helped me realize like like how good my life is i wouldn't appreciate my life as much as i do without like being in the military and seeing some of the shitty things that i saw like some of the shitty situations that other people have in their lives probably one of the reasons why i consider what i do now not to be really work because compared to what i have done in the past it seems very fun and easy but where what else would i be doing i don't know if i would have stuck with the computers or stuck with studying uh, probably be working a job i really don't like if i was even still alive so yeah yeah are you here to say or doing what i'm doing yeah in the states i mean it seems to me like there's like i don't know uh, probably just uh sampling bias but Seems like Australians are kind of those like citizens of the world, you know. Mm. It's not much to like get up and go somewhere. Mm. I um, I always thought, and I would tell some people that asked that I I'd never seen myself retiring in America, like when I'm done with everything. Like I don't, I thought I don't really want to retire here because home, home is still Australia for me, you know. Yeah. I, Thirty years I lived there, but now it's, my situation has changed again. I have a I have a an awesome awesome lady in my life for like over a year now she's wonderful and i certainly don't want to leave her yeah so i think the only the only thing now is like i would move back to australia if she went with me and i would move back if if i could find something that i get the same status job satisfaction as i'm getting now mm-hmm then I would do that back home as well. So, because that's one of the one of the cons about doing what I'm doing here is that I have family in Australia that I don't get to see very much. Yeah, you know, brothers and sisters, my mum and stuff like that. But at the same time, I'm not I'm not ready to stop. You know, the contract work with the military. Like it's it's nice because it's like I'm not my whole life. I haven't really been a planner. As you can tell, oh, you, don't say. you can tell probably by the last however long we've been talking, you can probably tell um, that I haven't been much of a planner. Uh, then, but I had a plan. It's a good uh, synthesis. Yeah, I of had our a conversation. I had a plan to move to America and be a tunnel instructor and teach skydiving. 
And that's all I've been doing since I moved here. So I would say that that plan, that plan when it, like the plan worked. Okay. No complaints. Perfect. Thanks for being on the show. It's a pleasure. Yeah. Thanks for coming over and doing it. Absolutely. Hopefully it wasn't too painful. Not at all. It was a pleasure. Thanks for being on. I love jumping with you too. All right. And, uh, Good. I've, now I feel kind of like I know everything about you. So you know a lot more, yes. We got to go out and uh, grab dinner or something. I can reciprocate. Absolutely. I would like that. No yeah, brother. I would like that. Thanks. No worries. Thanks for tuning into this episode of Thank You Now What, a podcast about life after service. Be on the lookout for Manny. Well, maybe you just have to look up. If you're new to our show, please check out our website, thankyounowwhat.com. You can see episode summaries. You can follow our previous guests, check out some great nonprofits, and look for ways to contribute to the show. You can also follow us on Instagram at thankyounowwhat to see any updates or also to follow us and our guests as well. If you want to partake in the cost of doing business with us, you can check out our website for our PayPal or Patreon details. Uh, Please know that everything that doesn't go to production of the show goes back to the nonprofits that we know and love. As always, thanks for listening to us. Please subscribe, rate, review, follow, and join us next time on Thank You Now What.